Hello and welcome to the 65th episode of Everyday Channel. With me tonight, as usual, is my co-host Bob Wang. Hello, hello. And as our special guest tonight from Washington, D.C., Travis Yu. Hey, how's it going? It's going well. Thank you so much for being on the show tonight, Travis. We have a lot to talk about tonight. Uh, you did really well recently. But first of all, I just want to hear, how's it going, guys? Bob, you haven't been on the last cast. What have you been up to? Uh, yeah, not not too much. Um, I haven't been able to test as much magic as I'd like. I think Legacy has changed a lot, and maybe we've finally gotten to the point where we may have a best blue deck and possibly best deck. So the reason I invited Jarvis on was basically he won the last quarterly format playoff. It was almost 200 players. And so congrats to Jarvis. He played, uh, no quote-unquote, no bad cards, Rug Delver. So that's kind of why we have Jarvis on the show today. But I'm kind of excited to dive in and talk about where Legacy is going for SCG Syracuse and GP Atlanta. Yeah, same here, same here. We, we got a lot of things to talk about. Uh, we also have a lot of data that we will look into. And Jarvis, have you already mentioned, you you took down the Legacy playoffs on Sunday. How yeah. did that feel? <laughs> uh, it felt fine. I actually normally do not play those Sunday events because... Most of my uh, day job is sitting at a computer for, you know, eight to nine hours a day. So I don't play a lot of the Magic Online events on the weekend. I talked to Anurag about this before. He was like, you should stream those challenges. It's like, I don't I don't want to strain my eyes even more on weekends when I don't have to, frankly. Besides that, I actually was playing a lot of Modern lately because I thought Modern Horizons changed the format a lot. And there were a lot of interesting decks to try. I was actually a huge fan of Hogak before it got banned, frankly, but, uh, you know, you can't have your shiny, broken deck forever, you know? Yeah, so what are you on in Modern right now? I hear that, I think they call it Versa has been doing I, recently. Yeah, I've talked to Stefan uh, Schutz a bunch about it. Uh, he topped in Grand Prix Barcelona with it, and I, th I think the deck is really good, and I've been learning it, but it's not the easiest deck to play or build correctly, I think. But you you found success with that deck as well. I have not found any success with it yet, but you know, I'm gonna just keep trying and learning, you know. You know how it is. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. And I guess Bob and Travis, you're both gonna be at Atlanta and I think it's two weeks from when we are recording right now. Yeah, and there's also a Star City Games open this weekend in Syracuse, New York, that we will both be at. Yeah, I heard about that. Is it a team open or is it a dedicated? It, it, it's just a dedicated uh, legacy open. Oh wow! Okay, that's a big thing as well. Yeah, and you're both going to be there, of course. Uh, assuming my flight doesn't get canceled again, yes. <laughs> Didn't that happen recently? Uh, it did. I tried to go to SCG Dallas, but there was a hurricane in Dallas, so they wouldn't let me fly there. So I just went back home. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, <laughs> at least you get your money back, right? Uh yeah. It it was fine. <laughs> okay. We're shortly going to talk about what you are going to be up to in Syracuse and Atlanta. But first of all, I also want to say that a lot of the stuff that we're going to talk about today will be on Channel Fireball. I think, Bob, help me out. When is your article going live on Channel Fireball? So I haven't written it yet, but I plan to write it uh, <laughs> next week following SCG Syracuse yeah. results, as well as uh, there's going to be a Magic Online MCQ. So I want to you know, incorporate those two events into the data. So it'll be slightly different from what we talk about today, but should be mostly the same. Okay, so unless Murfolk becomes the breakout deck of Syracuse, <laughs> we, this will be pretty much hopefully be the same that we're going to tell you about. So yeah, that, that's just what I want to say for people. If you want to follow the data, I think we're going to have it in the show notes or at least in Bob's article on Channel Fireball. So you will be ready and have all the necessary data available for your insight into GP Atlanta. 
I think it's the last legacy GP in the US of the year, right? The only yep. Oh, actually, we're going to put that. That is correct. Yeah, I mean, we got we got lucky that we got okay. two this year. I guess we've got had two for the past few years, which I feel lucky about. I do feel bad that Asia didn't get one this year, uh, so Japan kind of missed out. But hopefully next year, you know, hopefully we get like, you know, four or five legacy GPs next year, but we'll see. And if you are in Asia and you want to play high stakes legacy, you should definitely go to Beijing all off in the first week of November. It's not only super high stakes legacy, it's also the payout that's out of this world. This is, I think we're talking about 150% of the entry goes into the payout and you don't really get that anywhere else around the world. So shout out to that. I'm going to be there and maybe we can see some more international participants. Oh, wow. Julian, you're going again then. How, yeah, I'm going how expensive again. are tickets to China from Germany? Uh, so the return flights, the cheapest one that I found with a non-weird airline is around 500 euros. That's not oh, bad. That's I mean, it's not cheap, but it's not like you can do it every year or like every other year and not feel that bad about it. I've seen more expensive flights to, to other places, but this one, I'm, I guess I'm pretty lucky with regarding being from Munich because Munich apparently has a pretty good connection there. And... The only thing that's expensive is the visa, right? Actually, it's not that expensive. For for Europeans, it's 125 euros. And last time I was there, I enjoyed myself so, so much. It was one of the best magic trips I've ever had. And if you want to come this November, we're definitely going to make sure that you're going to have the same experience. So if you want more information about that, hit me up. Hit up James Sue on Twitter, and we'll make sure everything is Yeah, I would like to go to at some point. Not this year, but maybe, you know, maybe another time. And plus, Bob's Chinese is better than Yeah, mine. we're both Chinese, so we should go there at some point, Jarvis. Uh, Bob's uh, Mandarin fluency is much better than mine is. <laughs> but are you also conversational? Would you get along, or are you still a bit rusty? Uh, yeah, I my I can speak. I'm just much worse than Bob, and my pronunciations will. Uh, it's it's much worse than Bob. Jarvis, you gotta practice. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should do the rest of the cast and change. I think our, our our Mandarin friends would appreciate that. James tells me uh, we have. Maybe like some a couple of listeners who listen to our podcast from China uh, and know about us, so that's kind of cool. We do, we do, mm. and there's also people in the Chinese legacy scene who translate the most important articles that come out, so that the people who don't speak English can actually still read them. And because cool. there's only so much legacy content on the web, they are trying to bridge the gap in that way, which I find really amazing. In speaking of legacy content, I think the first time I ever heard about NBC Rock Delva, No Bad Cards Rock Delva, was an article on minmaxblog.com. Is that correct, Chavez? Uh, that sounds accurate. I think uh, even before that, Max references Adam Yurchik, who may or may not be a name you recognize as playing a very early version of this deck. I think if you track it, Condescend like, did well in a challenge with a rug deck that looks somewhat similar to this. I can look it up real quick. For those of you who don't know, Adam Yurchik is a longtime legacy slash vintage slash all-around good magic player, I think is the way to mm -hmm. put it. Wasn't he also heavily involved with Adnausium Tendrils at some point? No, that's Adam Prozac. Oh, sorry, yeah. Okay, so yeah, July 28th, 2019, Condescend goes 5-2 with basically this deck, like a version of this deck. Not all of the numbers are like exactly the same, but it's 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 the core shell, I would argue. And for those at home listening who don't have access to the show notes right now, it's basically Rakdelva, Canadian Threshold. But the cards that have been cut are the Stifles, the Nimble Mungus, and the stuff that has been added are three Renin Six, two Dreadhot Arcanist, a Hex Drinker, two True Name Nemesis, two Preordain, and I guess a Force of Negation. 
playing 19 lands, one of them Ethereal Islet, which is the Horizon Canopy land for blue and red. And that's pretty much the way the deck looks right now. The, that's the exact list. Um, if, if you want an explanation of the deck, I think the best way of thinking of this deck is just that it's it's more built like a Jun deck than you might expect. So, like, you basically removed all of the conditionally good cards. Like, Stifle is the epitome of a conditionally good card, right? Because if you're on the play and you stifle their, like, first Vetchland and Wasteland them, they're, like, basically going to lose most of the time. But a card like, you know, True Name Nemesis or Preordain, those, pretty, those are pretty much good on most turns of, of the game. Yeah, so know? how did you start playing the deck? Like, did you start playing in a couple leagues and streaming it, and then you decided to play it? Or how did that happen? So, I mean, you you remember that I did play a lot of four-color Delver, the Friedman-style Delver deck, which is essentially the same as this deck, I would argue, in a lot of ways. Um, it might not look the same, but... The play patterns are very similar because what you're trying to do is implement a mid-range plan with your Delver deck. So I, I have historical practice with this sort of deck, but also, yeah, tracking just how many people are playing this deck and how well it does in like challenges and the, you know, weekly, whatever, week legacy things. It, it seems to do very well and it seems to even do better the better a player plays with it. Oh, and that's always something a lot of people are also looking for, especially those who are more invested into the format. If you can get in the reps of the deck and get a real advantage out of that, that really draws you towards a deck like that. You also mentioned that you used to play a lot of four-color Delver, and to those who follow Legacy only occasionally, they might know you for winning a GP with lands, top adding the very next one as well. And I think when we went to Vegas, you also got pretty close to top adding another one, is that correct? Yeah, I was I was seven two going to day two, and my losses were pretty late on day one. But I six out and got ninth on breakers. You know, which can happen. I'm not going to complain about that. Um, but the the eternal weekend right after that, I played Friedman's four color Delver deck because he insisted it was broken, and I made top eight there as well. And I had zero buys for that event. I think. You can get buys at that event by winning like various trials. If you win two trials, you can get up to two buys, essentially. But uh, I didn't have any, any buys for that event, and I think I won 8-0-2 in the Swiss of that event, and lost in top 8 to Death and Taxes with Friedman's 4-color Delver. The, the thing that was unique about that Delver deck was it had like a bunch of Snapcaster Mages and Abrupt Decay and Bolt. So it was, like a, it was a true 4-color deck, but really, if you looked at its mana base, it was blue, black, splash, red, red, and green. That's what a lot of people actually say. It has two core colors, and then it branches out into two other colors for more yeah. tools. Underground Sea is the best land, was the best land in that deck, whereas this one is just straight rug, obviously. Yeah, and I think that's one of the main reasons to play this deck, is its rug instead of the current four-color Delver deck is also four colors. Yeah. But that one's more like its rug splashing black, but the mana base is extremely shaky. And so I, I tried that deck. I know you tried it too and also didn't like it. But I also wanted to know, how, how many times did, have you actually played this this version of this deck? We probably guess around 60 matches, which is not a large end. But I have previous Dover experience. So it's not like I'm starting from the very beginning. Right, right. right. I mean, I, I remember playing literal Stifle Canadian Threshold back in... Yeah, yeah I'm not counting those ago. versions, but you're, you're saying yeah. even like a version close to this version, you've played you know, 60 matches, which is a good sample size, I would say, for getting a feel for yeah. how the different matchups play out. 
uh, which was kind of the next thing we wanted to ask about. So I've only played this deck through a couple of leagues, and my initial impression was that it was powerful, but you know, I faced a lot of cards like Choke, and then I also faced a bunch of Mirrors, which seemed really coin-flippy. Uh, I don't think they necessarily were coin-flippy. I, flippy. I think the way I built my deck was perhaps not optimal. You made some changes that I really like, like you added two Spell Snares to the main deck. Uh, but basically, why I felt it was coin-flippy was Renin Six and Dreadhor Arcanist were just so overwhelmingly powerful that if they were active for one turn, you were way behind. And then if they were active for two turns, you were like almost so far behind that you couldn't come back. So that was kind of how I felt about it. But you kind of addressed that in your deck building and were able to win a lot of mirrors in the top eight. Yeah, so the the impetus for Spell Snare, I actually saw Autumn Burchett tweet about it literally the day before they played, you know, a team event in England, and Autumn said, I think this deck is great. Uh, here's the cards I played. Didn't agree with all of Autumn's choices, but the, one of the things that stood out to me was Autumn played two main deck Spell Snare, and that I thought about it for a while, and it just seemed so logical that that card would be great right now. Yeah, it makes sense. It gives, also gives you more leverage against Renan 6 when you're on the draw. Right. Whereas I feel if your opponent lands a run and six on their play on the second turn and they get to untap with it, which they usually do, I, I guess even if you get turn one driver, run and six just shoots it down. That, that actually introduces one of my least favorite play patterns nowadays, which is you have to try to figure out if you're supposed to jam the Delver on turn one now on the draw. Uh, I think you're generally supposed to and just hope that you don't get obliterated by a Ren, but obviously it's going to suck if it happens. In that way, the card always strikes me as kind of Chase-esque, in the sense that if you ever get to untap with Chase, it's so hard for your opponent to win. But I guess if you untap with Renin 6 in a non-combo matchup, it's also pretty rough for yeah. them. Is there actually a way for you to climb back into the game to beat Renin 6? I guess you have two named Nemesis or multiple Tamagoyfs. If you don't have to throw away a Delver into it, I think it's a little bit better for you. Because if they don't have Wasteland Ren going, you can actually win. The real issue is when you get waste locked in those mirrors, then the game becomes like almost untenable unless if you draw like three fetch lands in a row. Would you agree with yeah, that? Yeah, I definitely Bob? agree. Like the wasteland lock is very scary in the Delver mirror, and that's one of the things that always is usually able to be assembled just because you play so many cantrips. So like actually, after Horizons came out, I tried playing lands itself, and I actually got waste locked by a bunch of Delver decks repeatedly. I'm just like. This is stupid. I, that's supposed to be my role. But the problem is, if they just force avoid your exploration, their deck is so much better at wastewalking you than you are them. That's actually something that one needs to be aware of. I've seen players who wouldn't really attack the exploration thinking, there's probably something else I need to force avoid, but that card is really important. I actually think exploration got a lot more important because they don't play any mana bonds anymore because that card kind of sucks. So... If you stop their acceleration, then your Ren can just, like, keep them off of the, any of their plans, really. Like, it, it's kind of phenomenal. If you just kill all of their, like, covered sources or, you know, Thespian stages or whatever, and make sure they don't get to crop rotate, they can't really do anything to you. So you would say you feel comfortable playing MBC Rock Diver against Lance? Yes, I would. I also think I understand the choke points of lands better than most. I, I mean, I'm willing to let some things resolve that I think a lot of people wouldn't. Give us an example. What is something people fight over way too much? I think people don't fight over Mox Diamond enough, and people fight over Gamble too much. That's a good point. I guess Mox Diamond is a card you'd rather not have them have because of the tempo, 
but also because it's a permanent mana source, so they are always guaranteed to have at least two mana. And also, if the dirty secret is lands mana base is actually terrible. Oh yeah, man, tell me about it. I played it 10 years ago when it was actually quite different, but I also struggled for green sources yeah. the, many times. The problem is the deck has always cheated on green sources because it counted Mox Diamond as part of its mana base. So a lot of the hands they keep are keep because Mox Diamond gives them green. In speaking of Mox Diamond decks that focus on lands, how do you feel about playing this against the depth deck that Bob recently won an SCG Classic with? Yeah, well, s screw Bob. <laughs> Well, no, Bob beat me in that tournament in uh, round six when we were both 4-1. And he declined the ID or something? No, he declined the split, which I don't blame him for, but I we were playing a Depths Mirror, and I found those mirrors to be pretty coin flippy, personally speaking, but he had a slight edge with Dark Confound, I think. Agreed. And how do you generally feel about going up against it with MBC Delver? Okay, so one of the reasons to play this version of Delver is I think you're actually favored versus Dark Depths. Uh, that might sound weird, but I, there's a lot of good things going on here. Spellsnare in particular is actually phenomenal in the matchup. A lot of the times they have to draw, uh, resolve Hexmage or Sylvan Scrying, especially in Game 1, to assemble their combo. And the post-board crop rotation Caracas or crop rotation wasteland thing is just super annoying for them to get around. Yeah, I could see that. You have a lot of ways of interacting with them, even though you don't have Stifle. I've also played plenty of games of normal Delver versus Depths, where you just like randomly aggro them because their hand's not quite fast enough to assemble their thing. Like, the, there were opens where I played against Dave Long playing uh, Depths as Grixis Delver, and I would like manage to win like 2-1 a few times because like... If you just sneak in the damage when you need to and, like, chump block with your Delver once, maybe you get to kill them, you know, with, like, a bunch of lightning bolts or whatever. That basically gives you a second attack step by throwing yeah, exactly. your Delver in front of it. And post-board, you got other tools like Crop Rotation, Caracas. Did you ever get to Vapor Snake a token? Not in this tournament. I didn't actually play against Dark Depths in this specific tournament. I did in Leagues, and I have Vapor Snagged it. I honestly believe it's one of the weaker cards in the sideboard. Uh, it's pretty much only good in that matchup because the problem with Vapor Snag and other matchups is you really want to kill their things permanently, not just let them recast it a turn later or whatever. That being said, it is good with Dreadhord Arcanist because some sometimes you just like Vapor Snag, untap, attack with Arcanist, Vapor Snag their other blocker, and they just take a huge attack where they weren't expecting it. Yeah, it can provide a reasonable amount of tempo. But you also mentioned, and that's something I found very interesting, because that's usually a statement made by someone who has played a reasonable amount of matches with a certain deck. You said it often plays out much more like a chunt deck than people would actually believe. A lot of people, when they see Delva, when they see Days, when they see Wasteland, they think it's a tempo deck and it has to press naturally for a really strong advantage. And the deck is certainly capable of that, but... This is something that was shown to me three years ago by Jonathan Alexander, how the deck can actually play a lot more like a mid-range deck. He even went as far as to call it a <laughs> hard control deck when he was playing against Miracles. I think the way he built his decks, generally speaking, was to actually board into a, basically a rug control deck. And that is certainly an approach you can take. It eats up a lot of your sideboard slots. You need like a bunch of counter spells and ways to win late games. But that... The, every time I saw him post a sideboard guide, he's like, yeah, I side out everything that dies to Plow vs. Miracles to just blank all of their cards. So you gain effective card advantage that way because they like their Plows don't do anything, right? Because 
you have true names and nimble monkeys versus their source of power shares and whatever you know that's that's not a good matchup of cards right and the way he made some of his text encounters work was to play three winter orb and that was the first time yeah. I actually saw this much more mid-rangey, Chund-like approach to the deck. Now, this deck, looking at the sideboard, isn't really fully capable of that, I would say. I guess you have Chase as a one-off, but even in the main deck, I can see how the cards can play a more grindy, mid-rangey game with Dratod Arcanist or, yeah. Yeah, I guess, Hex Drinker as well. Well, uh, back to that comment about Jund. You're already the Jund deck in game one, so you don't want to devote many cards to further transforming jace is a nice pickup when it's good obviously like when it's good it's really good it, it, it someone once said jace is greater than all right like that that still sort of remains true in legacy right you resolve it your opponent doesn't kill it for a turn two they're basically dead right the the thing about hex drinker is i believe the first copy is the best copy because drawing the second one is really not good in a lot of situations however i i did progenus it multiple times in the tournament and once was even versus a person who had, like, a bunch of graveyard hate. So if you look at this deck, you're actually sort of soft to rest in peace, right? You count nine cards in your main deck that are not particularly good versus graveyard hate. Hex Drinker is good versus graveyard hate because it's Savannah Lions, then it becomes Progenitus. And as you mentioned, the first copy is usually the best, since you don't really want to split your mana investment between the two copies. Right. I guess it's already pretty hard to kill once you get it to the second level where it gets protection from instance yeah the other thing too is it it has like only one toughness and i did see you kind of side it out on the draw in some of the run and six mirrors and then leave it in on the play so you can't play too many cards that you like yeah have to take i was out actually the draw. thinking about that i wonder if nowadays you should actually consider shaving some delvers on the draw in these mirrors i thought about it for a while and then i decided against it because you still need spells to pitch to force of will and if they don't have the Ren 6, it's still one of your better cards, right? Right. And for those wondering, you would definitely keep in Force of Wills in a Delver Mirror. Because in past meta games, there were actually people who would cite them out for a good reason, right? L let me explain my philosophy on that nowadays. I think the problem with citing out your counters in the mirrors nowadays is there are too many haymakers that cost a cheap amount of mana. Like, Ren is a Haymaker that costs two. Tarmogoyf costs two. True Name only costs three. So if you take out all of your counter spells, you're leaving yourself ex being exposed to being run over in exchange for not two for wanting yourself. I consider Force of Will an insurance policy, not a necessity. I'm not looking to cast Force of Will if I don't need to, but it is nice to have the option to do so. Yeah, and I'd guess you'd rather two for one yourself on the Force then lose your diver to the Ren, because that's basically a two-for-one in itself, right? Yeah, agreed. Agreed. So one thing you did say about the deck, Jarvis, was that you felt like it didn't really have too many holes. Uh, let's talk about that more, because if, if this is a deck with, like, you know, very few holes, maybe it is actually, like, the best deck, and maybe it'll become, like, you know, Grixis Delver or Miracles was eventually given it enough time. Do you think it potentially has that status, or do you think there are some ways to attack it that people are not doing as much yet? if I were to build a deck that was good versus one, it would be white-blue based, but it would play the card Supreme Verdict, and it would also play Spell Snare. Uh, I don't know the exact other details of the deck, but I believe those are the two best cards versus deck that are not commonly played. The problem with blue-white is it's, it's very hard to beat, like, you know, Delver plus Combo plus Chalice. Well, I guess Stoneforge Mystic. So I guess you're sort of describing, like, a Stoneblade deck tuned to beat it, which I agree, you can definitely, you know, tune a blue-white deck 
to beat Rugdelver. However, those decks, I'm, I'm not sure that those decks could ever be more than just a like another solid deck. My I guess. issue with the current Blue White Blade decks is I think they're not controlling enough to be able to beat this Delver deck because the approach they take to beating this Delver deck is to go to try to go slightly above it with equipment, and I don't think that is a good strategy. If they if their strategy was to kill all of your creatures with Supreme Verk, no questions asked, spell snare Renin six, then I think they're probably ahead in the matchup. I feel like we are <laughs> we are acting a bit like Sherlock Holmes here, trying to solve a crime case. <laughs> we have all these clues. We know we want Supreme Verdict. We need a decent amount of spell snare, but we also should right. try not to be too much of a dog to combo. So. Is there anything, uh, like, you know, not pressing you for an exact deck list, but is there anything that you could see with regards to a threat base that could work? Because Blue-White, you know, often struggles because they can't really lock out the game. They can counter your first five spells, but then they draw past them flames and they kill the Blue-White player. So is there something like Vendillion click on your mind or, I don't know, maybe even a combo finish of your own? Uh, my, the card on my mind versus combo decks is still Narset, part of Avails. It, it's the problem with Narset is that it's not good specifically versus Rogue in my opinion, but it is very good versus most of the combo decks. That's interesting. I watched Anorak's stream and he talked a lot about how he doesn't really like Narset anymore, but still plays a lot of Teferi, and I feel that's almost, at least from my perspective, the quote-unquote downfall of these decks when they get so invested in a card like Teferi, and I feel they can't really play Narset anymore at that point. But at least from my perspective, Narset is still a very good card in the metagame right now. I, I, it's kind of a similar problem to, I think, Dark Confident and Dark Depths. It's like one of my best cards against most of the field, but it's just really bad against Renin Six and like Blue Red Delver. But it's so powerful, but it's kind of like Narset. Narset seems, you know, pretty good against a lot of decks, but it's not very good against Delver. <laughs> Varus Teferi is bad in all of those. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I, I'm just really biased against Teferi. I don't think the card. Yeah, I mean, it's like a three mana bounce spell with upside, is how I see it but that's not really saying all that much uh i, I don't really see what honorog sees in the card either it is good in like control mirrors so that being said i five out with barn food chain last night and that felt really good i got to minus the ferry on my guy um what's the name the hideaway guy watcher of yeah watcher of tomorrow that's the one that's the one i minus on it and that felt amazing i, I like to ferry in combo decks like like you mentioned food chain maybe Maybe even like Infect and Aluren, but yeah, in in control decks, it's not. One as good. note about Teferi is I think it's way better in Standard and Modern than it is in Legacy, mostly because it is like a. Th there, there's so many good things that cost three or more in Legacy that you kind of have your like pick of the litter there. Whereas in the other two formats, like Teferi's pretty good card, and there's not as many options, right? I don't know. <laughs> In speaking of combo, how do you feel MBC Rakdelba fares against the more prominent combo decks in Legacy right now? There's some kind of resurgence of Sneak Show that has done well on previous weekends. There's also Storm coming back up again. Do you feel comfortable facing them with a lot of cards in the main that don't really do too much to them, I would say? I'm going to answer that with a comment about some of the sideboard choices I have. I think game one, generally, you're not too happy to draw your red cards like Lightning Bolt or Renin Six. Obviously, like it could shave a turn off the clock or whatever, but Lava Spike is not a canonically good card versus combo, in my opinion. Post board cards like Spell Pierce, obviously pretty good, 
Pyroblast, Red Elemental Blast, Good vs. Cantrips, Null Rod, and All Star vs. Storm. Like, one of the reasons I almost always play Null Rod is it basically defeats Storm if you play it on a reasonable board because it takes them a lot of time to remove it or try to figure out how to combo through it, which is not that easy for them. For Sneak and Show, Crop Rotation and Caracas is a good tool to have if you cannot stop their show and tell. If they put a Gristlebrand into play, you're not likely to win the game even if you crop rotation Caracas it because they might be able to assemble Sneak Attack, Emrakul, or Sneak Attack Gristlebrand the very next turn. Yeah, that's the problem with the deck, right? Even if you get to remove Gristlebrand, you're probably dead next turn anyway because they get to draw 7 cards, sometimes even 14 cards, and that's pretty much it. That was definitely true in lands because you don't put any pressure on their life total. It might be slightly different in this deck if you have a clock on them. The crop rotation Caracas might buy you enough time to just kill them like, maybe they go to exactly 7 on your attack or whatever, so they can't draw 7, or something somewhere like that. When I have Caracas, the way I usually lose is Sneak Attack with a lot of red mana, uh, or even just outright, you know, the old omniscience into Emrakul. Unless, I guess you could try to remove... How, how many ways do you have to remove the omniscience? Uh, destructive Reverie and Blast... Yeah, okay, but I guess Blast would have hit the uh, show and tell anyway. Yeah, I I guess that's just a losing battle, right? Trying to remove it. The, the major problem with trying to kill the Omniscience once it's in play is you don't really have a good way to get priority before they get to cast a spell. The, the way you would normally do it is to put something into play that puts a trigger on the stack so you would be able to kill it. But you can't do that with this deck with any of the cards that currently exist, exist in it. Yeah, I'm just looking at the list and there's really nothing with a comes into play ability. Yeah, which is fine. I, I just plan on fighting on their spells on the stack. Yeah, yeah, that's good. So you already mentioned that the deck feels really good and that like maybe could be a blue white control deck out there that's good against MBC Rock Delva. But are there any other established decks in the metagame right now that you don't really want to face with this? I believe if I were to play against a competent dredge or hogak player that i think i would probably lose more often than not the one card i don't play for my crop rotation package in the sideboard is bajuka bog if you wanted to gain points versus decks you could play a bog uh, i don't feel that it's worth it but both dredge and hogak like the pure hogak deck i think would not be great matchups for this deck yeah yeah i i could see that how do you generally feel about those two decks in the metagame right now we don't really see a lot of graveyard hate right now, do we? The, the other issue with those decks is I don't believe they're generally good versus depths. I would say they're unfavored versus depths on the whole. One, access to Bajuka Bog via crop rotation. Two, discard plus a fast kill. Depths, if it's left to its own devices, kills on turn two or three like relatively often. So, I mean, ob obviously you won the last big tournament with this list. But is this something that you would recommend for our listeners to copy? Or during the tournament, was there ever anything that came up that made you want to change a couple of cards? Uh, I do not believe Rough Tumble is a good card right oh, now. Oh, really? Uh, the reason I don't believe that is Renin 6 sort of covers all of your bases that Rough Tumble does. So the effect of Rough Tumble is that you side it in... And then you look at it while you have a true name in play and you're like, I wish this was almost anything else. The, that interaction used to come up a lot for me and I used to just write it off. But I think with Rough Tumble not being as necessary versus tribal strategies that you should just play another good card over it. 
Tribal strategies, never heard of though. I, I, I guess we're going to see about them later when Bob's data comes up. But have you ever put a true name nemesis on yourself? Have you ever given it protection from your own rough tumble? I considered doing that once when I had a pyroclasm in my hand. Awesome. I really want to see that as the game-winning play, you know? Commentators would lose their shit. <laughs> well, I think what would happen is like the stream would like witch hunt you for like cheating and not killing your true name nemesis, and then only later would people realize you named yourself. I guess Chiris must be used to that, right? You probably played with Riftstone Portal in your land, <clears throat> land stack at some point. But yeah, we already teased it. Um, Bob is our podcast's only real statistician with regards to keeping track of the numbers of the Legacy metagame. And uh, I think uh, Drivers would take offense to that because he is much more of a statistician than I am. Yeah. Uh, th there, <laughs> there are a lot of caveats to my data. I've lived into Bob about how I think there are issues with this. The problem is no data is perfect, so I, I don't give him too much crap about it, but... There, there are serious issues with any data set regarding magic tournaments. Yeah, and wasn't there this great quote by Andrew Ellenbogen about how magic is all about how to properly extrapolate from an insufficient amount yeah. of data? Small sample sizes. And I think that's a great way to think about magic. Yeah, a lot of it is intuition. But if, you, if you're able to use your intuition and logic and back that up with data, it's, it's kind of... It's some combination of the three eventually should get you to the right answer. Yeah, it definitely gives you a lot of tools you would otherwise not have, right? It provides some kind of some kind of illumination in a dark, dark cave. And while it's not going to light the entire place, it's going to help you find the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so let's get to my uh, metagame data. I posted it on Twitter. We'll have it in the show notes. It'll be in the article on Channel Fireball probably around... Uh, hopefully, I'll probably write it Monday, so hopefully like Wednesday of next week, so around the 18th. So what the data is, essentially, it is Magic Online challenges and playoffs and MCQs, where people have gone X and 2 or better, and then as well as in real life tournaments of 8 rounds or greater, so that's 128 players or more. So in terms of what that is, it's just basically tallying up all the numbers, so it's a quote-unquote winner's metagame rather than a base metagame of what people actually played. Uh, but it's, I still find it useful to give a guide of what decks are winning. So you can see by far uh, Rug Delver is the highest at 11.9%, which is almost twice as much as the next deck, which is Moon Stompy at 6.8%. Uh, so that's kind of, to me, that does show that this Rug Delver has just been putting up some amazing results. And like, even though I gave it a try and I didn't like it, I think I, I probably need to really consider it. I know it's one of the decks you're considering for the GP Jarvis. So it's definitely something I, I probably want to come back to my Delver roots and think about it some more. Uh, but basically, there's been you know more dark depths than lately. So I have another breakdown, basically showing that uh, about a quarter of the decks play run in six. Uh, about a quarter of the decks play days, and then Jace is at 18%, and Merit Lodge is at 12%, which is pretty high because it's higher than Grizzlebrand, which is only at 10%. Chalice decks are at 15%, Storm is at 9%, Dahlia decks are at 5%, which is extremely low, because usually Death and Taxes is a very popular choice. So I think basically what this data set is showing, and we can kind of bear it out uh, with our intuition, is that Red and Six decks have really pushed out a lot of these Thalia decks, or made them you know, a tier below what they once were. Uh, and in terms of other things, uh, Force of Will is still 50% of the format, Brainstorm 60% of the format, everything looks fairly healthy from a top view like metagame perspective in that it's very diverse but i did pose this question on twitter which is like pros of today's legacy is it's very diverse there's so many strategies you can play the cons are games feel really swingy and i think 
maybe people just like to complain on Twitter, but I asked people how they felt about the format, and people definitely focused way more on the cons than on some of the pros. I guess that's a function of people talking on social media, because when they're unhappy, they're probably much more likely to reply in the first place. But I would still give some consideration to those unhappy people, because <laughs> I'm also somewhat unhappy about certain aspects of the format, but I also do enjoy quite a lot of the playable decks. I'm just like it's just it's just not elves and it's just not maverick <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah both of those decks have a really hard time against Dragon six it's not even about those two decks in particular you know because even though i'm heavily associated with elves that's really only been the last six years that's a pretty long time for legacy six years <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> i guess um, but generally i consider myself a guy who likes playing mid-range strategies and i don't really see a lot of great mid-range options i'm actually drawn towards the deck we just talked about, the MBC Rock Delver deck, which plays a decent mid-range game, as we just heard. But yeah, I'm just the kind of guy who wants to activate Knight of the Query, so maybe there's green-white depth for me, even though it plays Giver of Runes, which apparently is a <laughs> ton of ticks on Magic Online right now. I had no idea. It's 16 tickets, according to Mangucci. All of the uh, Modern Horizon cards are absurdly expensive because the price, the price, uh, sorry, the price of the packs were really high. So I don't think as many drafts were done. There's also the fact that like right after Modern Horizons came out, M20 came out, so it just was not opened in very large amounts. And so those cards are worth crazy amounts of money right now. Like Renin Six is like 130 ticks. Like that is insane. <laughs> so should we be hoarding treasure chests right now, expecting them to rise in the future? Yes, you should be. I think and the. This actually, I actually had the theory that this was going to happen because if you track historically, all of the sets that come out in the summer are opened less to begin with anyways, and the doubling of the price of the booster pack was going to happen. And to, to top it off, these cards have not been printed in any other set, so the supply is already naturally low, and Modern is the most popular format. Maybe we should have an MTG Finance podcast, because that really <laughs> makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, I, I I regret not actually figuring out that Ren was the card to buy. Instead, I bought like a ton of Horizon Lands on Magic Online. I think I have like 56 plus on my account right now. I also did a ton of Magic Online Horizons drafts. I did like 50-ish. So is this Fury Islet in the deck just part of this big conspiracy trying to spike the Horizon Lands? Oh uh, no, they, they don't naturally spike by themselves. That card, Those cards are just good. Some big canyons like the best card in modern burn isn't like and, and stuff like that. You know. <laughs> I was just wondering. Going back to the data Bob mentioned, something I found especially interesting, and maybe Bob, you can help me out of that. I noticed that Force of Will is just fifty percent, and I think you said again fifty percent, basically implying it was fifty percent in the past as well. Is that normal? Because I think it used to be higher. So it used to be higher just because there used to be more blue decks. Blue decks used to be more than 60%. Blue decks used to be closer to 70%. So the force count maybe was closer to 60%. That has you know gone down, but I'm not necessarily against that. Like Even though the blue count has gone down, a lot of these decks like Chalice decks are also really good against combo. So we haven't seen necessarily like an overwhelming amount of combo, but it is also worth noting that I don't think, I think this is the first time that combo decks are over 33% of the metagame and they're actually like uh, doing better than aggro and control for the first time. So I think that is unique and that's kind of an interesting aspect of today's legacy. Okay, that's pretty cool. 
How do you feel about playing something like mm, a very dedicated Storm deck? Maybe maybe even going as far as... Well, I don't really want to say Belcher, but okay. Not a Storm deck, but a combo deck. Black-Red Reanimator. Because in your data, it's 50% Farcifer, and Black-Red Reanimator is equipped pretty well to, to beat that. And also only 15% Chalice decks. That also doesn't really strike me as too many. Mm-hmm. And no Thalia decks pretty much at all. I guess that in Texas, most combo players would say that's a good matchup. Well, every time I talk to Eric, he says that like there's no bad matchups. The worst matchups are like the Chalice matchups, and they're still like slightly favorable. So if you believe Eric, then you should always be playing Black Red Reanimator. Basically, <laughs> I was actually watching his stream right before, and he was talking about exactly that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he does say that like in real life, it's a little bit dicier because then you get like some players like uh, Miracles players who play Rest in Peace, and he doesn't side for that. Or, like, Delver players, you know, have some random hate that he's not ready for. So, that's the main problem with Blackguard Reanimator, is if he sideboards wrong, he can just, like, instantly lose game two. But the deck is very powerful, and it's also very good against other combo decks. I don't think it's as good against Depths as he makes it out to be. I think that matchup is either in Depths' favor or very close. I'm willing to believe it's very close. Uh, And I... The other thing, too, about Blackguard Reanimator is, like, I think it actually takes a surprising amount of skill, mostly when it comes down to sideboarding and mulligan decisions. Uh, so I think, like, even if I were to pick the deck up, I could probably get to, like, you know, 80%, but the last 20%, you actually do need to put in the time to learn the deck. I actually registered Blackguard Reanimator in Pro Tour 25, mostly for the first reason where I expected a ton of Storm and Sneak and Show. I did not expect that many Eldrazi decks or Miracles decks or Taxes decks or whatever. I did expect Grixis Control, and I, I thought generally Reanimator was good versus most of those, and I was that was the deck I was actually winning with the most before that tournament. I had like probably like a 70% win rate on Magic Online on a secret account. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Secret account. Are you still using it, or is it retired? Uh, it's retired. It is retired. I just found it super interesting, you know, what people choose for, for their account names. Because Eric, he actually named the secret account Dovin's Gatekeeper, which is, I guess, refreshingly random. And I always wonder what other people name themselves after. Uh, that one was named Aftermath FTW, which was actually one of my old accounts from like 2005. And I just reactivated it to test for that tournament. And Aftermath was a WoW guild I was in. Uh, okay, are you still playing War Vanilla right now? No. No, I can't do that to myself again. That's too many hours. <laughs> yeah, I'm in the exact same boat. I enjoyed War Vanilla a lot, lot, lot. But if I did that again, I'd have no time left for anything. But So basically, I agree with all Bob's points. I think the deck is really good. It's probably underplayed for how good it is. And the reason it's underplayed for how good it is is that it feels really bad to lose to people who want to beat you. And it's also kind of hard to just predict IRL what kind of hate they're going to have sometimes. Yeah, Eric mentioned when he gets hit by Leyline when he doesn't really expect it, or like Bob mentioned, when Rest in Peace hits when the opponent doesn't expect it, they lose the game for free at that point. And from there, you have to win basically every game that's actually being played. And that can be pretty rough at times. But yeah, I I feel like the deck could be pretty good um, to get a decent win rate and also make some money on Magic Online with it right now. But, of course, in an event like a GP, you don't really get to play a lot of matches. So you're somewhat prone to hitting a bad streak of variants. But, in general, I think this is a deck I would recommend if you're unsure what to play and you felt like 
yeah, maybe subscri subscribing to Eric's Patreon. By the way, this is this is not supposed to be a sneaky advertisement for his Patreon, but I know that he has a really good sidebot strategy or channel guide to Black Red Reanimator up there. So shout outs to our co-host Eric, Eric Landon. Bob, is there anything else that sticks out to you with regards to data? By the way, you can find that on itsjudent.com as well as in Bob's channel fireball article on Wednesday, probably. So I'm looking at the finishes and uh, I see F's as far finishes, which puts it at 1.1% of the meta game. Uh, one one interesting note that Bob wrote down that I don't think he went over was I think he thinks the snow control deck is incredibly overhyped. I think that's a really interesting point. And I think it kind of is the same thing about Grixis control in the previous time point. I think Grixis control put up way more results though, but yeah, go on. The point of those, both of those decks, in my opinion, the the macro archetype for both of those decks is the same to me. I think the overall point is the people who play that deck that did well with either of those decks are just generally good magic players. You almost never saw weaker players do mm -hmm. well with that deck, right? Uh, and I think part of that is they basically force you into spots where you have to decide what role you want to take. Like, do you want to try to, like, grind your opponent out with removal? Or do you want to try to, like, play your creatures? Like, and the problem is your clock's not that fast either as well. They they don't, those decks generally do not have fast clocks. So you, you're almost always forced into a situation where you have to grind the game such that your opponent has literally nothing and then kill them with your leftovers. Like, Ice Fang Collateral, Baleful Strix, Plague Engineer... They, they don't generally play good win cons because good win cons don't generate value. I think that is why you do not see weaker players do well with that deck, generally speaking, because it's hard to play in such a way that your opponent has nothing and yeah. you're well, not. Well, a lot of players play. have started playing Tarmogoyf. Even Strifos playing Tarmogoyf in his Punishing Thieves deck. And I, I kind of like that as a more proactive, just <laughs> like... Tarmogoyf is just a really good card right now because Baleful Strix is not because of Renin Six, so... Yeah, so the Tarmogoyf alleviates the exact problem that I was alluding to. Yeah, but is that I, I guess the numbers show that it's not necessarily the way to go, because we had that discussion on our everyday channel Discord the other day, where we were wondering, is the lack of a proper win condition really something you want to change? Or is that something in Griggs Control we were specifically talking about? Is that just something that you have to accept and roll with it? Because Otherwise, you'd be compromising the versatility and the general grindy approach of your deck too much by putting a quote-unquote stupid card in your deck, like, for example, Tarmogoyf, or anything else that's a big, bad beater. I mean, I think it depends on the metagame. I think the metagame shifted in such a way that, like, yeah, you need the actual win condition, and Tarmogoyf is just actually a good card right now. Uh, I think if the meta were, like, all control decks or whatever, then you probably want to do the dirtly values thing, but the meta is very much not like that right now. So, But at that point, I'm wondering if you still want to play the deck in the first place, if you have other options. I also think it's potentially behind against Delver decks. I mean, I think you can definitely build these Grixis shells to beat Delver decks, but the problem is the Delver decks have access to more powerful plays early and days. And as I mentioned earlier, these plays just snowball. So like, you can play Arcanist and with days back up, and then the Grixis control deck will just be like out of it. That's like the main problem with playing control right now, is Arcanist is such a good card advantage engine, and to a lesser extent, Renin 6. So it's like, if the aggro deck has card advantage, then what, what edge does the control deck really have? Red Hot Arcanist is brought up a lot by 
traditional control players like Anorak, for example. And they talk a lot about how Dreadhought Arcanist is a big, big problem for them to deal with because it's another card that they must answer immediately or they will fall heavily behind quickly. It feels like the card is doing a lot of work and along with Renin 6 is one of the major reasons why we don't really see many good, dedicated control or mid-range options in the data right now. Like, what are your premier mid-range options? I guess Blue-White Stoneblade and then not really all that much, right? And no bad cards, Frog. Yeah, I guess that's grouped under Timo Diver in the list that Bob provided. Oh, and for the people who are wondering what we mean when we say that the snow deck isn't really performing right now, the snow deck, I guess we have the four-color and the five-color versions. If we combine those two, it has three finishes. To provide some perspective, Rock Diver has 44. <laughs> Moon Stompy has 25. That's a... Blue-White Stoneblade has 23. That, that's pretty pronounced. Oh, well, you're talking that's... about the... Uh, that's there's two four color snow decks. There's one with black and one with white. If you count like all of the snow decks, then it's six plus two plus one, so nine. But still, it's it's significantly less than. Oh, yeah, there's another one up there. Yeah, yeah. So it's still significantly less than Delver, even though like a lot of people like playing, you know, Culligan's Command and Jace together. So yeah, maybe not the kind of deck you want to play right now. But that's just our interpretation of the data provided. I think the deck used to do pretty well in the beginning. I think Daryl Ayers had a pretty sweet list that we also talked about on the podcast that he found some success with. But yeah, let's see what the future holds for the snow deck. Editor's note, it won the very next SCG Open. In speaking of new influences, there's a new set coming out, I think pretty soonish, right? Throne of Eldraine? Yeah, I believe the pre-release is... I think it's like the week of Atlanta. The yeah. 28th. No, it's not the week of Atlanta. They don't schedule pre-releases during uh, GPs for the most part. It happened once in a modern GP and Sao Paulo, but this time it, there's it, it's the 28th. Okay, is so it's right the, after uh, the... Okay, cool. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, and the overall flavor of the set I find really, really cool. It has this fairy tale theme going on. It doesn't really take itself super seriously, which is something I always enjoy a lot. I'm also a huge fan of, I, I guess, Onslaught didn't take itself very seriously as well. And even though it does have a lot of dark and grim cards, it also does have a, <clears throat> does have a lot of happy... But <laughs> I, I, I guess we're getting a little bit, of course, we're still a competitive podcast. <laughs> I love the art. Like the art direction has been like much better, and I also think some of the collector's edition art is super cool. Like I've seen like Flax and Intruder. Most of the split cards and collector's edition art looks really cool. By the way, do either of you guys know how much those collector's edition booster packs are selling for? Are they like? T- I heard twenty five dollars. Oh my um, gosh, that's so much. But I I'm not hundred percent sure. That was what I heard at one point. I could be wrong. That's also what I heard. Okay. <laughs> that's probably right. But that's just that's like. Like, I don't know, how much do regular boosters go for? Like $4? $4. So that's like six times as much. So that's that's yeah. really steep. But it might be correct to get them just because, you know, <laughs> people love Pimp Magic cards and the art really is just that much better than the regular mm-hmm. ones for the from what I've seen so far. Maybe just hard them. But yeah, there, there's a couple of cards we have picked out and we are not sure that all of them are gonna see Legacy play, but we think they are good enough that we should talk about them on the show today. The first one 
is Once Upon a Time. It's an instant for a colorless and a green, and if you play Once Upon a Time as your first spell of the game, you get to cast it for free. We've never seen that broken, right? And what it does, it looks at the top four cards of your library and lets you pick either a creature or a land card from among them and ship the rest to the bottom. So how do you feel about the card? I think someone mentioned it could go into the Grizzlebrand deck in Modern. I'm blanking on the name right now. Neoform. Neoform. Neoform, yeah, that's one. Jinx. <laughs> yeah, this card is... I mean, free spells have historically been broken. This one doesn't have an effect on the battlefield, so I could see it not being broken. It also has to be in your opening hand, but you know, we also yeah. just did add the London Mulligan. A lot of people have been talking about this deck in Modern and Legacy. In Modern, they've been talking about Neoform, Amulet, Tron. It's almost it's similar to Ancient Stirrings. It's not quite Ancient Stirrings, but it potentially does help you assemble something like Tron. And in Legacy, I think the easiest fit would actually be Dark Depths. And I have no idea if it would be good in Dark Depths or not. I would have to test it myself, but I think it has a lot of potential. I think Sylvan Scrying is kind of like a meh card. It's, like, it's just like a six against every matchup. And if this is like a great card, I could totally see just replacing Sylvan Scrying. Uh, Jarvis, what are your thoughts? Uh, similar to your thoughts, one deck that I, two decks you didn't mention in Modern that I think really could use this card are Devoted Druid, first off, and second, uh, Green White Eldrazi. The the best land in the Green White Eldrazi deck often is Eldrazi Temple, and you don't have that many turn one plays. Like your turn one play in that deck is either Ancient Stirrings or Noble Hierarch, and you also flood out a lot. So the this card is good if you have two mana lying around on later turns. So Green White Eldrazi, Devoted Druid both fit the bill. In Legacy, I'm less sure that it's good, mostly because it is nice that it has that split option, but I think a lot of the times Depths, especially, needs to find the piece, like with certainty. It is nice that I can find Hex Mage or Dark Confound or Reclaimer, but uh, the the jury's out for me as well in Legacy. I guess people would like it if it puts the card in the graveyard. Oh, that, 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 that would have that would so just much be grizzly salvage. Yeah, Th- that'd just be a broken grizzly salvage, which is already kind of a broken card. But also, grizzly salvage costs green black and is never reduced. So, <laughs> so it's a card we might see, but I'm also not sure. I do like the design of it because they're clearly trying to give non-blue decks the option of filtering, and maybe we are going to get there at some point. So, another card. (laughs) When it was spoiled, I got a lot of Twitter messages from people. (laughs) Of course you did. (laughs) Yeah. It's Witch's Vengeance. It's a sorcery for a colorless and two black. Creatures of the creature type of your choice get minus three, minus three until end of turn. I really hope this card will not see any legacy play at all it's just i don't know what's going on how how's there so much tribal head coming out of wizards these days the, their design ignores formats that aren't standard you know that right for yeah. sets like this yeah, so of course this this set is supposed to have tribal themes in it so i think this is a check on the set itself there's supposed to be like a fairies theme i think there's a knight theme so the which is vengeance is like a check on those strategies and honestly for like legacy play this looks much worse than toxic deluge or plague engineer to me yeah that's true or even dead of winter i think you tried to make it work at some uh, i i had an obsession with dead of winter then i realized my deck was just a bad version of the four color snow deck so i gave up on it so yeah this is 
more a card that does scare me, but I agree, <laughs> or or I'd rather want to agree. It's definitely not going to see any legacy play, and everyone should totally forget about it. Another card, Wishclaw Talisman. It's an artifact for a colorless and a black. When it enters the battlefield, you put three wish counters on it, and then when you pay a colorless, tap it and remove a wish counter from it, you get to search your library for any card, and your opponent gains control of it. So it's basically a 3-mana demonic tutor, and if your opponent ever gets to untap with it, he gets to do the same for 1-mana. So I've seen Storm talk about this card basically as an... I guess most of the time it's going to be better than Grim Tutor if you want that kind of effect. Obviously it's worse if you want to pass the turn. Yeah, you don't lose the life, but then it's weak to stuff like Nullrod, and... I, I don't really see it in Storm because Storm it's so important to be able to like flashback your tutor with Pass and Flames. So like maybe maybe a certain Storm deck could play it. I was thinking more along the lines of like maybe Goblin Welder or Goblin Engineer sh- shenanigans, but then I guess you're in black red. So yeah, I guess I currently don't see a home for it, but it's very powerful. So I could. I have I could a few see ideas. A few things were pointed out to me. This card is really powerful with Karn the Great Creator because you do it and then they have this thing that doesn't do anything. It also finds your Karns and you can also wish for it for Karn. I don't know the exact shell, but maybe like blue, black, I don't know, nonsense, planeswalkers, you know, the old Tesserator deck, but cutting Tesserets for Karns and talismans. I, I don't know. I, I haven't worked out a shell, but a card like this, once you see it broken you'll be like, oh, why didn't I think of that? Mm-hmm. So it's either going to do do nothing or like something really powerful, basically. Yeah, exactly. It's either a 0 or a 10, I think, is the reality. You know what I want to do with a card? I want to untap it in response to its ability. Yeah, you can do that with Voltaic Key or Manifold Key. Manifold Key is also in standard for what's worth. It's in M20. So yeah, maybe there's a deck for that out there. Actually, there's this super crazy deck. Um, What's the name? Um, Susurus. Yeah, <laughs> you can read yeah. my mind. I I streamed that deck on Monday. Oh yeah, what did you think? C- can we quickly mention what the deck does for the listeners who can't read my sure. mind? So basically, it's a artifact-based deck with like all the Sol lands, and I mean all of them, like literally all four. So it plays Crystal Vein in addition to Ancient Tomb and City of Traders, and uh, I guess it also plays. Uh, Inventor's Fair, which is not a Sol land, but basically the goal of the deck is to get a Mystic Forge in play, and then you have all these artifacts that just generate mana, like Grim Monolith, Basalt Monolith, and Voltaic Key, Manifold Key. So you basically make infinite mana, or you don't make infinite mana, but once you have Mystic Forge, you get to turn through your deck until you hit Paradox Engine, and then that really goes off, and then you find Karn, and then you find Ballista for the kill. So it's actually a pretty fast deck. It's like fairly vulnerable, because it only has like eight cards that do anything like Karn and Mystic Forge but like even if you like Surgical Karn for instance like if you just force Karn and Surgical it, it can be like kind of stuck so I think you know it's a very powerful deck but I think it still needs to be further refined. I would like to know that that doesn't really happen if you think your opponent has Surgical because you just side in the blister so you can fare for it. Sure. Why did you feel like it was behind against Delver? Uh, Wasteland's really good versus those decks, and you can never beat a Null Rod, and Ancient Grudge was also pretty tough to beat. Makes sense. Oh, I played... The last match of that night, I played the Literal Mirror, and it's really unpleasant. Whoever Karn's other person first is basically a lock to win. <laughs> oh my god, dude. That sounds really, really disgusting. <laughs> it's not very interesting. You know exactly what's going to happen. You can look at your opening hands and almost determine who's going to win. <laughs> Pretty much, right? <laughs> wow. Um, another card that was spoiled. 
that also gave me a lot of the notifications is Wildborn Preserver. For one green, it's a 2-2 Elf Archer with Flash and Reach. And when another non-human creature enters the battlefield under your control, you can pay X and put X plus 1 plus 1 counters on it. And only as I read it right now do I realize that it triggers every single time, so you can actually keep growing it. I don't see why you would play this card. The only thing it does is block Delver of Secrets, and that's like, it still costs two mana, so... It also blocks Smart Large, it does fuck Grizzlebrand, and there's applications for that. The problem with it is that, outside of that, it's not really that great of a card for what Elves wants to do in the first place. It's much more like a mid-range aggressive card. And... I am on record asking for a playable Elf with Reach that is also playable when the Reach is irrelevant. But the card I have in mind is always like a 0-1 Lano Elves, which I guess would be kind of like a, a tree elf or something. <laughs> but yeah, I don't think this card really goes into current version of Elves other than something people in the Elves Discord have been brewing, Beatdown Elves. I haven't really played it yet, so I will... Somewhat reserved judgment. That just sounds really bad. It's like if you're doing <laughs> beatdown, you. then there's like there's like humans and slivers that kind of do it better. Wait, so why did we delete the other card? Charming Prince. Did did you do you like Charming Prince? I actually have a lot of thoughts about. All right, it let's talk card. about Charming Prince. But I deleted it, so you're gonna have to go find it. All right, Charming Prince was what? Okay, well, let's give the full context for this card. One Reed Duke was given this card as his spoiler card. Classic. And, you know, this honestly makes sense for him, right? It would only have been slightly better if this card were a human knight for his mm. spoiler. But well, let me explain. The application I see for this card in Legacy and Modern is honestly the human's deck. And for those wondering what the card does, it's a 2-2 human for a colorless and a white. And when it enters the battlefield, you can either scry 2 gain 3 life, or exile another target creature you own and return to the battlefield at the beginning of the next end step. So it's basically a flicker wisp for your own creatures, but it can't target the opponent's stuff. And you don't get to blink your own while to reset it. Right. It is a 2-drop instead of a 3-drop, which flicker wisp is. And scry 2 is pretty good when you don't know what if the other two modes don't look particularly relevant. Like a 2-2 scry 2 is not the best card but it's still like a pretty good card right if you're playing against randomly like an aggro deck you know game three that's a lot of life like that's one bolt or something like that and really the most exciting part of the card i think is the last text if you flicker palace jailer that's really 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 powerful also you can set up the recruiter chains that death and taxes does right Mm -hmm. you can also flicker thalia's lieutenant and no even more cute is if you have multiple lieutenants slash champion of the parishes, you can flicker your second charming prince and it'll slowly create a loop of counters on it every end step essentially. You'll put more counters on your guys. Oh, wow, that's an actual engine. Yeah, that I, I think the card is pretty good in humans and not the best in other places. You might see it as a one of in Death and Taxes or something like that. Because like gain three is a relevant effect in some games, you know? Like if you're playing it's like a burn deck, you just want to draw all of these, right? I just I, mean, I can see it in maybe like modern, but in legacy I just don't think games are coming down to like incremental value anymore and i, I and i disagree that like 2-2 two, two, scry 2 is good like 2-2 two, two, draw a card would be good but scry 2 is just so much worse than draw a card 
But I, so I'm skeptical that he's playing Legacy, but uh, I'll be happy if Eddie Zamora proves me wrong. So I, I think one thing you're missing about it, about this is it doesn't naturally die into Ren 6, and it doesn't naturally die to Blake Engineer, and it can let you set up board states where you can get rid of those cards like permanently. If you have a Palace Jailer and your opponent has a Plague Engineer, you can Jailer it. Then if they play another Plague Engineer, you can Jailer that one too with, with this. So that's kind of nice. And that that's like a pretty common use case. I talked to a couple of Death and Texas players, and they were not super excited, but they could see a slot for it. Right. They said it's nice to keep your while on two. It's another human for Kevin of Souls. It has a lot of small incremental advantage exactly yeah and as bob mentioned maybe this is not the world for small incremental advantage right now but as a card it's pretty okay (laughs) okay i guess that's not the nicest thing to say about a legacy card yeah i'm looking for haymakers now so let's let's move on to the next card which i think is a potential haymaker i don't know if it'll see legacy play it'll be kind of fringe but it's questing beast and it's just a I like this one so much. It's two green green for a legendary beast. And holy crap, does it have a lot of text. Vigilance, death touch, haste. Can't be blocked by creatures with power two or less. Combat damage that would be dealt by creatures you control can't be prevented. Whenever it deals combat damage to an opponent, it deals that much damage to target planeswalker that player controls. So there's just so many things going on. It has like... And it's a 4-4. It's a 4-4. And it has all these clauses. So it has this combat damage clause, which makes it good against uh, lands like Maze of Ith. And it also is good against True Name Nemesis. If True Name blocks it, guess what? Damage can't be prevented from protection. So the True Name is dead. And then it also has like this sort of Fire Nice-like text where you get to like attack your opponent and then hit their Planeswalker. And then added to all of that, it's Vigilance, Death Touch, Case. So it's good on offense and defense. And when it's on offense, it can't be blocked by small creatures, so they can't make a bunch of creatures gang up to trade with it. So I think when this card's in play, it's very powerful. The downside, obviously, is that it is a four-mana spell in a day's format. So I could definitely see this card in something like Sylvan Plug. Like I would be kind of excited to actually try that deck with this card, but the double green is also kind of tricky. It's kind of hilarious how many abilities they managed to slap on their creature without actually breaking it. I have a tweet I made about the set, which is, every card just has 9,000 words on it. <laughs> yeah, it's wild. Because like a lot of the cards are like Aftermath, or not Aftermath, adventure. but uh, on an adventure, yeah. uh, which uh, we should explain to some of our listeners. Uh, I haven't seen an adventure card that's like necessarily great in Legacy yet, yeah. but maybe we will see one. But adventure is basically, you, you can play it from your hand as a creature or a sorcery. If you play it uh, as a sorcery or an instant, you, ha- you get to exile it and then replay the creature later. Uh, kind of like flashback. So... Yeah, and those cards have so much text on it. It's just like, they're, you're like reading a book, basically. Uh, yeah. The tweet I had in question was, I tweeted basically a gif of a penguin reading a book over and over. <laughs> that wasn't regard to the card. <laughs> no, it was regards to this set, because every card has 9,000 words. Anyways, this, this card actually kind of makes me mad of how pushed it is. Like, just read all the words on it. There's no bad words on it, except it costs four. But that's the problem when they've like printed all these yeah. planeswalkers that accrue value is that you literally need your creatures to be ridiculous I, I, I or have haste. So it just it's R and D basically they 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 go through these cycles of like pushing cards and they're like oh wait hold on we need answers to them and then pushing those answers and I think we've just seen so much power creep lately. So far I don't think anything in Eldraine is like 
absurdly powerful like we saw in like you know modern horizons and war of the spark uh for eternal formats but it does worry me slightly that if every year we get this absurd amount of power creep then like our formats might be less and less recognizable but i guess there's always a ban list uh to clean things up Um, but still i wonder if there will be a cooler set in the future basically where they would pull a mechanical yeah, mask or, or kamigawa block yeah kamigawa was the same yeah yeah, yeah exactly Bob probably doesn't remember that it wouldn't really do much for legacy because we would still have to bust the cards around but i guess quest increased also isn't going to break the format the card is pretty cool for all nick fittish players uh, where do you see this card make an impact outside of that and i guess silver plug let me explain a few small things that this card does that may not be apparently obvious so the clause that combat damage that would be dealt by creatures you control can't be prevented overrides a bunch of things that are not not intuitively obvious. The first and mo- foremost thing is it overrides protection from True Name Nemesis or Mother of Runes. Oh, Mother of Runes is a good one. This other thing it actually overrides that isn't as relevant anymore is Glacial Chasm. So like those are small things, but I mean they add up. Like if you play one in your like Maverick deck, it has haste, like has vigilance, has death touch, and occasionally you'll like swing through a board that's like all mother runes or whatever, like small creatures, and just deal your opponent four. Or elves. El- elves can't block this, so if you put a GTA on Questing Beast, uh t- Yeah, I mean I'm just saying. And then you get to uh deal four to Nissa. <laughs> Which Nissa? Voice of Zendikar or Well people are trying to make Voice of Zendikar a thing because of Plague Engine. I know, I know. It, I'm it's not just good. not on board. So are we talking about the next card? Because I'm actually excited about that one, but Yeah, you wanna introduce it, Jarvis? Yeah, alright. It is ooh, the original spoiler was actually in Chinese, but I'm not gonna read it. Can you? Uh some of the characters the problem is the Chinese characters for most magic like effects are not commonly used in like everyday conversation. Uh, anyways, the, the card is Emery, Lurker of the Lock. It's two and a blue for a legendary creature, Merfolk Wizard. The spell costs one less to cast for each artifact you control, which is basically affinity for artifacts. When Emery, Lurker of the Lock comes into play, put the top four cards of your library into your graveyard. It has an ability. Tap, choose target artifact in your graveyard. You may cast that card this turn, and it's a 1-2. So I have a lot of thoughts about this card, specifically in Modern. The thing that was pointed out to me is if you have Jeskai Ascendancy and two Mox Ambers, you can go through your entire deck. I've heard the same thing with Mishra's Bobbit. Yeah, but th- those are delayed triggers, so oh, you don't get to draw true, the cards immediately. True, true. So what, what Emery does with... Uh, I'll explain it in the combo real quick. So suppose you have Emery, not summoning sick, Mox Amber times two and Jeskai Ascendancy. You play your first Mox, you trigger the untap from Emery, and you loot... If, even if you have no cards in hand, you just mill yourself for one. You activate it, target your other Mox Amber. Or, sorry, you play your second Mox Amber, Legend Rule the first Mox Amber into your graveyard, do the same thing, activate Emery targeting your Mox Amber. It has untapped from the Jeskai and Sensei. It also gets plus one, plus one. So it could just kill your opponent by itself, or you could just mill yourself, floating a blue every. floating two blue mana every time. To just mill yourself into a walking ballista, tap the emery to target walking ballista and cast it for X equals twenty. You can also do it with Mox Opal. Uh, right? You would need Metalcraft, so right. you might not have Metalcraft, but you probably do because your deck that is based around emery probably plays a bunch of zero drop artifacts like Mishra's Bobble or whatever. 
Yeah. Uh, I don't know how you would build the exact deck in Legacy. I suspect you don't want to rely on Jeskai Ascendancy because that like bites it pretty hard to Power Blast. Perhaps you could build like a Chalice-ish deck with some... I don't know. I, I would have to think about it. But the the fact of the matter is that that tap ability is really strong. Mm-hmm. I could see it in like Urza Stompy, something like yeah, that. Yeah, that could happen. It, it's better if you can somehow abuse the graveyard ability. I guess it sort of feeds itself, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's also just a value engine if they don't yeah, kill yeah. it. And it costs like potentially one mana, so that's, you know, we've seen one mana one twos that have wreaked some havoc on Legacy before. Well, also one mana one ones and the like. Uh, one other thing that it it's just good to grind with Mistress Bobble, as pointed out. Just drawing card every turn is like kind of a broken effect, right? I also want to point out that the artwork is a throwback to Monty Python. Did you notice? I have. Mm-hmm. Well, isn't the characters from, like, King Arthur... This whole set is, like, King Arthur plus Brothers Grimm. It's basically a reference... I guess it's also more King Arthur-like, but it's also a reference to Monty Python and the Holy Grail, where the guy argues strange women lying in ponds, distributing swords, is no system of government. Oh, okay. I've seen that on Twitter, and now I understand it. Yes. Oh, wow. That's something. Actually, uh, Julian... I think you had some, like, like a lot of these Brothers Grimm's tales were based on German fairy tales, and you were telling us that, like, the German version was significantly darker, so I don't know if you have a couple uh, in mind that you might want to share with the, the podcast. Yeah, a lot of stories are actually made more suitable for children, because a lot of the stuff I had read to me as a kid was a lot more gruesome. And as a kid, you don't really realize that other countries have less crazy stories, for example, Snow White. Uh, I don't really know how Snow White actually ends in the international version, but... She marries the prince with the slipper. Oh, wait, hold on. That's, Cinder- that's Cinderella. <laughs> Snow White, uh, Snow White she, like, she, like, kisses the prince or something, and it saves... No, the kiss... Uh, the, the prince kisses yeah. her. <laughs> yeah, okay. But what do you do about the queen in the international version? Maybe she dies. I don't know. So, in the German version, Snow White marries the prince, and she becomes the new queen, and at her wedding, they invite the old queen, and they have those slippers made from iron, and they heat them up as hot as they can, and the evil queen is made to dance in them in front of everyone until she dies. Holy cow. Wow, that that is is just, like, extra cruelty. Yeah, Yeah. as a kid, you don't realize, because literally every fairy tale story in Germany is messed up big time. There's there's also one about the boy who sucks his own thumb all the time, basically like a baby. And one day his parents invite this psychopath, Taylor, with these giant scissors to ambush the boy and cut off both his thumbs. There's literally blood everywhere. Like, I I will never forget the image of, of that thing in the book. There's literally blood all over the place in the book. And... That's the kind of thing you grow up as on as a child in Germany. So if you ever wondered whether I'm weird, maybe that's probably part of it. So if we actually piqued your interest in these kind of stories, um, one of the books is called Struvelpeter, and I'm going to put the link in the show notes on studio.com. <laughs> Sounds fun. Cool. Okay, uh, let's wrap up since we've gone for almost an hour and a half now. Uh, let's just do one more preview, which is the Royal Scions. It's a three-mana Planeswalker, one plus blue-red. Uh, plus one, draw a card. Plus one, target creature gets plus two. 
plus O and gains first strike and trample. Minus eight, draw four. When you do, the Royal Scions deal damage to any target equal to the number of cards in your hand. And it starts at five loyalty. The big thing that jumps out to me on this card is it, it just starts at five loyalty. Like, how do you kill it? Like, even an imposing, like, I guess you would have need a Delver plus a Lightning Bolt. So the five loyalty is extremely good. The loot effect is powerful. The plus might also go well with, like, Dreadhorde Arcanist. So some people have suggested this as a one-of in Blue Red Delver. I'm not sure, because the bar is really high. Like, you could just play a True Name Nemesis instead. Um, do you guys think this card might be playable? I'm not thrilled about it, really. Honestly, if you ask me, also, not really. I think this is one of the more fine Planeswalkers in the sense that it, it's not super pushed or super powerful. But I think I would enjoy a format more if Planeswalkers were more like this one. Because everybody likes it when you get that super powerful Planeswalker, and it's a ton of fun and everything, but eventually you realize that's probably not where you want to be headed. So I kind of like the design of the card, even though it's a little hard to kill for, for a three-mana walker, but it doesn't really seem like something you want to be doing in Legacy right now. Also, regarding Dreadhor Arcanist, is there is there something in blue and red with converted mana cost two or three that you want to yeah, cast? Yeah, it's like a braid is the only one that commonly sees play. Yeah, agreed. Only a braid. Days. If they cast a spell with the trigger on the stack, you can daze it. Also, you have to have plused it on the Dreadhor Arcanist. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm thinking about this. Not this card does not look good to me. That well, good enough to me for a legacy. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is our verdict on the spoilers. Maybe there's gonna be a couple new ones in the near future, and we will certainly discuss those on the next episode. But yeah, this is how we feel about the legacy meta game right now, right before the GP. So if you have any questions, uh, you can hit us up on Twitter. You can join our Twitch streams. Or if you want to support the running of the show and get access to our exclusive podcast Discord, you can join our Patreon on patreon.com slash everydayechannel. And where can people find you specifically? Let's start with Travis. Travis, where can people get hold of you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter. My username is jkyu06. I have a YouTube and Twitch channel. Both are JarvisU. And those are the best places to get in touch with me. Awesome. And Bob, have you actually put in some streams ever since the last episode? I did want to. I think I streamed once, and it, I think it, it was pretty successful. Uh, I'm going to be doing more in the future, but I, I say that every time. So uh, <laughs> maybe I need to really make myself commit to a plan, and then uh, I'll announce it at the next podcast, I guess. I, I've just been really busy, and I haven't had that much time to test. And when I, when I test, it's like sometimes I want to like keep my testing secret. So it's maybe, maybe after Atlanta, uh, we'll see. Ooh, Bob is going to come out with the next version of Death in Texas. Death in Texas, <laughs> so I can see it. Don't hold your breath. <laughs> see, he's not answering. He knows it's true. And if he did, I would have totally removed it in Audacity. <laughs> so yeah, if you want to find me, I'm on twitter.com slash itstudian23 or on twitch.tv slash itstudian. And with that, I want to close it out, but not before giving shoutouts to our new Patreon Benjamin on the Delver tier, as well as our recurring Eternal Witness supporters, Matt and James, and our Grizzlepen tier supporters, Bachu, Scott, Kurosh, and Jeremy. Thank you so much for chipping in to allow us to produce the show. And all of you, tune in for the next show when we'll discuss how everything went at GP Atlanta. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. See ya. <laughs>